Hello, I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Stone Ape Reports, where I have conversations with those who have changed their lives with the power of psychedelics. Please note, if you're considering working with psychedelics, stay legal and stay safe. Do your research, understand contraindications, test all substances. Psychedelics are not for everybody. Quick announcement, I now have a book out titled The Grief Trip, How I Learned to Heal with Grief and Psychedelics. You can find it at www.thegrieftrip.com. 100% of proceeds go to the Ian Preston Memorial Fund to help support mental health and suicide prevention. Okay, back to the podcast. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Dennis McKenna, an ethnopharmacologist, researcher, lecturer, and author. He and his brother Terrence are the ones who coined the term stoned ape as part of their evolutionary theory. He's the founder of the McKenna Academy and a board member at the Hefter Research Institute. The McKenna Academy embarks on a long-term project called Biognosis, which aims to be a catalyst in bridging ancestral wisdom, ethnobotany, and innovation, for a, all for a thriving planet. We talked about his personal journeys with psychedelics, his insights as an ethnopharmacologist, and even discussed end-of-life anxiety and death. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Dennis McKenna. My return to South America in 1981 was in some ways a personal redemption, you know, approving, mm-hmm. proving to myself that I could go back to South America and just do science, you know, and just, and function and not go crazy in the jungle, you know, and yeah. that wasn't my objective when I came. And, and so uh, my work as a graduate student let me get back into that area and reconnect. And it also brought ayahuasca forward for me as, uh, you know, one of my major plant allies before it had been mostly mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And, and now I, but, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't exclude any of these things, but ayahuasca kind of emerged as something important in my life at that point. So yeah so that was that's what i that became my main teacher if you want to think of it that way okay yeah and so when you when you first got into it you know you went down there to to do the study and you went through the experiences um for you it was very professional for you it was very a uh, curiosity around the the chemicals and, and the the biology and the botany did you yes. end up with with any, was there any personal aspect to it? Did you come out of any experiences in those early days when you felt like, like so many of us do, you, you come out feeling connected to human beings, or maybe there is some lingering guck, you know, from family life that kind of got explained or cleared up. Did you have any of those type experiences or were you able to kind of remain focused on the, on your studies? I kind of stayed focused on my studies, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my actual, you know, uh, when I was in South America re- researching ayahuasca and collecting plants and, and all that, I took ayahuasca a number of times, but I think in some ways I was deliberately suppressing the effect, you mm. know, because I felt, you know, I mean, I was like a stranger in a strange land in a certain way. And I, you know, very alien environment to me at that time. I mean, I'm much more used to it now, of course, but at that time. So I think I 
in those early experiences with ayahuasca, uh, I, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't let myself surrender to it, you know, as much yeah. as I could have. So there were rich experiences that had to do with the people I encountered and just the, you know, the adventures that I had while carrying out this field work. Uh, but the psychedelic experiences themselves were not, you know, not that profound. Uh, I didn't really connect profoundly with ayahuasca until uh, actually 10 years later in 1991, uh, when I went to Brazil, I was invited to Brazil to, uh, to a conference that was organized by the UDV, the uh, Brazilian church that uses mm -hmm. ayahuasca. They organized this biomedical conference uh, and, and in Sao Paulo in 1991. And I was invited along with everybody else in the field of ayahuasca that was involved in research, which was not, not many at that point, but, but they organized this conference. And uh, eventually out of that conquer, conference emerged a, a study two years later, which has come to be known as the Waska Project. Uh, and that was the first biomedical study of ayahuasca. And I helped organize that. I participated in it. I found funding for it, but many other people participate. But the, uh, the reason I bring this up is that uh, at the end of that 1991 conference, uh, the, the UDV wanted to cap it off with uh, having everybody take ayahuasca, everyone who'd been to the conference. Mm -hmm. They wanted a really meaningful experience. They wanted people to go away with, you know, something to take, talk about, something to yeah. take home with them. And uh, so at the end of that conference, we all went to the UDV temple, which was close to where the conference had been. And, uh, you know, we were with about 500 people and mm. uh, we took ayahuasca. And in that experience, I had this profound encounter with the process of photosynthesis. And I've written about this in my books and various places. I experienced photosynthesis. I mean, hmm. I'm, a, I'm a plant biochemist, right? So right, right. only people can relate to this, but I had this profound experience of going through that molecular roller coaster that is uh, photosynthesis you know, wow. from the standpoint of a water molecule, which is <laughs> one of the one of the reactants in it. And, uh, and I experienced that on a profoundly personal level. And uh, why that was important was, uh, it brought forth to me the, the importance of, of photosynthesis and the importance of, of plants, you know, for saving mm -hmm. the planet. And so that was probably my first really profound encounter with ayahuasca. You know, I was, I mean, I'd taken it previously, but like I said, I, in Peru, I didn't let myself go. But in this situation, for some reason, that wasn't an issue. And that was a very um, personally profound experience for me. A and I was, uh, 
you know, and, and, it, and it influenced me and in what I have been talking about ever since, you know, uh, the idea of symbiosis with, yeah. with plants and that sort of thing. So that, that's what that was. And that, and, you know, you can read about the vision in various places. I describe it in my book, the, my memoir, the brotherhood of the screaming abyss at mm -hmm. some detail. So anyway. And so what do you, what do you think enabled you? It's, you know, ironic to think in a conference of 500 people, <laughs> all taking it, taking a cup of ayahuasca to have a big breakthrough. What, what do you think was the difference there that allowed you to not suppress? Well, a couple of things. For one thing, we took it in, in a group of 500 people, 500 members of the, wow. of the congregation, but it was all in Portuguese, right? So mm -hmm. I was not, none of the gringos there, or few of them spoke any Portuguese. So I was not expected to sit up and pay attention, you know, and I, I felt like the, the, the circumstances gave me permission in a way to just go deep and just, just concentrate on my own inner process, not really paying any attention to what they were saying. Mm. I mean, the, the UDV ceremonies are often, you know, there is, they are kind of like a church service, you know, complete with sermons and all that. I was able to ignore all that unfortunately or, or fortunately i was not able to ignore the songs they were singing which were mm. beautiful beautiful songs shabbatas they call them and uh, so i was just able to pay attention to my uh my inner process there and not not really be engaged with what was going on around me and uh and that that's why i was able to you know to have that experience uh um yeah. And yeah. since then, so you continue to work. Also, I felt safe. I didn't feel, you know, in, in Peru, the situation was somewhat always a little more dicey, you know, but mm. this in Sao Paulo, it was, you know, it was just a feeling. It was a good optimal sentence setting, I guess you could say. I felt you know, yeah. quite safe. I felt uh unafraid to really surrender into the experience, you know, and the experience yeah. delivered big time. And it really impressed me. Yeah. Have you been able to kind of reproduce that since? Or are you more able to, because I would imagine your profession is still difficult, especially since you experienced um, photosynthesis. When you mm -hmm. know about these chemicals and you know what's going on and you study them as deeply as you do, I did wonder if that would somehow maybe get in the way or, or even complicate, you know, a, a journey or, or does that happen? Do you sometimes find yourself um, observing inside your own mind? Like, Oh, this is happening and that's happening. And here's what's getting broken down. No, no, not, okay. not, not so much. Not, Good. not so much. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that you can reproduce, uh, you know, unlike perhaps your, efforts to connect with your son you know that mm -hmm. might be something that you could go back to but this was just an episode and i i haven't even tried to reproduce it you know yeah. I, mean, I remember it so vividly uh and uh but i've, I've not tried to make it happen again you know if it comes up it comes up um but you, you have extensive experience with ayahuasca 
I don't know about extensive. I've had a few ceremonies mm -hmm. and a couple really important breakthroughs. Okay. So and you know that it's got a lot to teach, you know, or one, one could learn a lot for it. So, yeah. So you've had some breakthrough journeys yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, there were challenges. I had a hard time. I think maybe similar, similar, but different to you that uh, I would hold myself back and mm -hmm. not, you know, be, it's, you know, it's, it's a big thing to experience, you know, the, the spirit of La Madre, the visuals are so big and so representative that it can be overwhelming and a rational mind like mine. I think I, I did push back. And when I finally was able to open up with, with advice from a friend who had been through several weeks of journeys in Costa Rica, she gave me some great advice and I was able to open up and really get, get some of that, um, get the benefits. And since then I've continued, you know, to get the benefits. So that's why I was wondering if, if from your mm -hmm. first breakthrough, if, if you've been able to experience it more fully since then, or if you have gone back to being a, you know, intellectual about it. Well, I can be both, you know, yeah, I can good. be intellectual about it at times, but then when you actually take it, you know, you get experiences that are very, you, you just kind of have to take them for what they are. I think if you mm -hmm. try to analyze them and unpack them too much, then in some ways it's like trying to unpack smoke, you know, these are dynamic <laughs> experiences. These are like, I guess memories and uh, recollections and and that sort of thing. So uh, you know, I, I think in most people's uh, experience, people who have experienced uh, psychedelics, uh, you know, the the recollect they are among the strongest recollections we have. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you reflect back on your life at the most important events in your life, the ones that have really stuck to you. Well, there are things like, you know, uh, getting married, uh, maybe the first time you made love, maybe, you know, these kinds of life experiences, which are uh, things that only you can have, you know, that's the beauty of psychedelics. These are personal these are intensely personal experiences for people but uh profound psychedelic experiences are right up there in that pantheon you know the first with being born and i suppose with with dying i mean i haven't mm -hmm. yet died but i assume that if i have consciousness when that happens it will be pretty profound mm -hmm. and uh uh, you know, so not all of my ayahuasca experiences, not every one is a major breakthrough, you know, in mm -hmm. fact, I don't think, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't get it every time, you know, uh, maybe one, one out of 10 times is a really right. moving, profound experience, but worth it, you know, worth it enough that you keep doing it, hoping to get another crack at it on the next gold ground you know yeah so, so that's yeah absolutely um so as you know we talked you know i lost my son ian and and i love hearing his name right so when people come to me sometimes they they don't want to say his name because they worry they're going to hurt me which i try to tell people it's like you, you really can't hurt me 
any more than I'm hurt, right? Yeah. But the truth is, I love hearing his name. So I think it's the same thing. You know, you probably people talk about Terrence a lot and in your experiences. So I just want to give you an opportunity. You know, is there anything about Terrence in, in the personal side of this? You know, I know he kind of went out there and became, you know, the, I don't, preacher's not the right word, but it's the word that came to me. He's out there putting the word out there and telling everybody about, you know, and you're doing all your scientific work and understanding this. Was there anything personal in your experiences with him um, in your journeys together? You know, is there any integration talking about it, big changes, familial things, you know, anything out there that you guys experienced as brothers that you would want to share? Uh, well, you know, I guess, I guess the, uh, you know, the, the whole La Chirera story is really a story about brothers, you know, mm. and, and that unique relationship that we had. And then, you know, subsequently we did share some psychedelic, we shared psychedelic experiences, uh, you know, and they were very rich, you know, mm. uh, uh, at the time, like when I was working on learning how to grow the mushrooms, I did grow them. And I was living in Colorado at that time. And Terrence came out from California. I had a cabin I'd rented up in the uh, Big Thompson Valley outside Loveland, Colorado. So he stayed with me a number of days there and I had mushrooms growing and we did two or three trips that were really quite beautiful and, and quite bonding. You know, we hadn't yeah. been into it that long. It was a recent discovery that we figured out how to grow them. So that was very rich, you know, yeah. and, and from a standpoint of a brotherly thing. And then, you know, the other thing that, uh, you know, so much impacted my life is when my brother got ill with cancer, mm -hmm. and, you know, toward the end of the 90s. In 1999, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma. And glioblastoma is 98% 98 mortality, you know. Yeah. It's one of those that you don't get, uh, get out of, you know. Right. I mean, it, it basically... And so I, uh, you know, this happened at a time in life when he and I were kind of, I wouldn't say we were on the outs, but, you know, our relationship was strained for a number mm. of reasons at that time. You know, I didn't uh, think that, you know, in, in some ways I didn't think that he was walking his talk. I thought that he was... Mm. Uh, you know, out there representing psychedelics, being the major spokesman for psychedelics and so on, and not taking them, not taking mm. them enough anyway. Right. And, and the reason that he wasn't was because of some traumatic previous psychedelic experiences mm. that he'd had that probably were scary, you know? I mean, they, they can be scary. And, sure and so, you know, we, we had cognitive dissonance over that. And I, I, was, I would say, you know, um, if you're going to be the major public spokesman, if you're going to be Timothy Leary 2.0, you need to walk your talk. If you're going to be mm. in public talking about psychedelics, you need to go to the well and drink once in a while. You know, what, I mean, yeah. literally, or whether it's mushrooms or whatever. And, you know, and he pushed back against that. So we had, 
other tensions in our in our relationship, and some of it had to do with his his divorce proceedings, which were in process at that time. And uh, you know, I am standing outside that relationship. Of course, I knew Cat, and I knew Terence, and I. Uh, in a lot of ways, I I don't think I really understood the challenges that Terrence faced mm. in that in that relationship, and so I feel bad about that. But when he got sick and uh, got this this terrible diagnosis, all of that went away, you know. And I mean, mm-hmm. it didn't. I mean, it just became unimportant in some ways, or it wasn't the main thing. And so at that point, I just dropped everything uh, to be with him and to be available to him as he navigated, you know, these last, the last year of his life, basically. I mean, I was not Mm -hmm. with him all the time, but I spent a lot of time uh, with him in California and in Hawaii and so on. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, it was, we were trying to do shamanic therapy. Uh, in, in some ways, we were trying to do therapy with psychedelics mm-hmm. uh, to kind of help him prepare, you know, for this transition. That was the idea. Uh, I brought my good friend, uh, Luis Eduardo Luna, up from Brazil, and we we spent probably four four weeks with Terrence in, in Hawaii, taking ayahuasca, taking other things. Uh, and again, it wasn't as satisfying as it could have been. But I guess the point is that this, this last year of life that I was able to share with Terrence uh, was very, I think well, it was profoundly meaningful for me just mm-hmm. to have that experience. And I hope it was for him, you know, but yeah. I, I, I hope it was, I, I think I've never been in a position of being, uh, you know, in a terminal state. I mean, in some sense, we're all in terminal states, right. you know, yeah. but, but in a terminal state where you know that you have, not very long to live, you know? Right. So uh, that uh, is a good reason to focus your mind on some of the, some of these things. I don't know. I was happy to be able to share that period of, of time with him. And I think we did bond. And I think we, we, uh, you know, we got past a lot of the things that had been, tensions in our relationship you know i mean big brother little brother and and many many decades it's not like it's always just uh you know happy happy joy joy there are issues that come up you know and we've always had issues that doesn't mean i didn't love him and i i did and i do and Mm -hmm. uh uh you know it's just one of those life experiences that you have to live through and you have to somehow deal with it and move on. I'm sure you've dealt with, you know, you've been faced with much the same kind of thing about your, your son Ian, you know, to lose Mm -hmm. someone like that. I don't know. You must've been close to him probably. Very, yeah, very, very close. 
Yeah. Very, very close. And I say, you know, it's uh, moving forward, not moving on, you know, for me, learning to heal with the grief, not from the grief, you know, those mm-hmm. little things there is, uh, yeah, when you have those kind of connections, a father to a son, a brother to a brother, you know, it's, it's, it's profound and there's really nothing that's going to take that away. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a probing personal question, but did you have an inkling that your son might commit commit suicide? We didn't. We had, we had no idea that he might die by suicide. Hmm. Um, It was really a surprise. You know, I got a call from his boss one day that he hadn't shown up to work and I thought it was going to be his diabetes. You know, I had, mm-hmm. I had no idea that what the police officer was going to tell me when I got there, right. which is, which is about the case, the case for about 50% of suicides is people, you can look back and say, okay, maybe this was a sign. Maybe that was a sign, but you know, very, very, uh, smart, successful. I mean, he was 19 when he died. He was already, a you know, kind of senior software engineer, very successful and mm. a leader, you know, people turn to him for, for leadership in, in his field. And yeah, so just, just a super funny kid. So we didn't have any, any, any idea. And, that, and that no, we, no indication that he was depressed or anything. So like that. I think that there, there could have been signs that he was depressed. I think the the problem is I grew up inside of my own garbage. Mm. And so I mm-hmm. couldn't, we couldn't see it in him. And so when there were signs of depression or sadness, um, I think that my own container was like, well, yeah, that's normal. You know, everybody, everybody's, you know, which is, which is sad, which is really Mm -hmm. awful. And I had been through some significant therapy myself, but now I look at it and think, boy, I could have used some really deep mushroom or ayahuasca trips to break open my container. And if I'd had that, 10, 15 years ago, maybe I could have turned around and said, oh, hey, kiddo, that's mm-hmm. not normal. Let's go get you some help. Yeah. And if Ian had had that opportunity too, it might have helped resolve some of those things. Yeah. So that's, uh, well, you know, I mean, I'm laughing, but I, I do not think it's funny, but I think it's, mm. uh, I think that, uh, it's kind of ironic, you know, that we have these tools available to us. And yet in the crunch, we don't always take advantage of them. For some reason, yeah. there's a hesitancy to reach for mushrooms, to reach for ayahuasca, to take it together with somebody in a life crisis, you know. And yeah. that was my experience with Terrence that, you know, I mean, we pressed him, Luis. Luna and I really leaned on him to do profoundly, you know, large doses, profound doses. And he was mm-hmm. sort of like, no, I don't know. You know, I mean, he was not uh, really buying into it. So the uh, opportunities to make the breakthroughs that I'd hoped would happen, um, you know, he, he didn't leap at it. And so in some ways it was disappointing for, for me. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, then you reach a point where you think, well, you know, this man is dying and I cannot set myself up to judge, you know, right. what is right for him. I, you know, he only he knows what's right for him. Yeah, it's a whole different context. And those are the choices he made and so be it. 
you know. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get but, that. Yeah. But on some level, I, I hope that he understands or understood, uh, you know, that it came from a place of love. It came mm -hmm. from my heart. And that's all you can do. Yeah, I, I agree. And where, where I am today, I, I'd say there's no chance he didn't understand that. You know, before I would have said, well, who knows? I don't know. But I think now with some of the insights I've been provided, I think I don't have any problem saying I think that he, there's no way he wouldn't have understood that. Yeah, yeah. And he, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you know, you, you got to, I mean, I'm sure you've been through this with your son. You know, you have reflected and you thought, have probably come to the conclusion that you have to forgive him. There's an element of forgiveness there. You know, um, that's something I went through with Terrence. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, when he died, you know, or uh, when he got sick, I was surprised that one of my reactions besides grief was anger. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I just, what the hell? You went and died on me. Yeah. You know, that's terrible. Yeah. That wasn't supposed to happen that way. <laughs> that was not supposed to happen. And, uh, but, you know, of course I don't blame him. He had no mm -hmm. control over, over his illness. You know, he did have control over, uh, you know, like every, everybody does, how they relate to other people and so on. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, sometimes he wasn't, that conscious about it. He wasn't that empathetic or, or, or uh, you know, that way with other people. And I, uh, you know, he, he was wrapped up in itself a lot, you know, mm. I guess mm -hmm. as somebody would be. And, uh, uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know uh, what, what he learned from uh, the experience of dying, you know, I, I have mm -hmm. not, I am not, uh, you know, unlike you, I, I, you know, I haven't had any experiences where he seemed present. I've had dreams. That's what I've had, mm. you know, some very intense dreams. Right. And in some ways, I feel like Terrence is a presence in my life. Uh, even without that, we were mm -hmm. we were very close, almost as though we were left and right hemispheres of the same brain yeah. at the time. So, and that was a trauma when he died because it's like having half yourself killed. You know, mm, yeah, and, a little piece of you or half your half the hemisphere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, like everybody else, I guess, who's, who's, who's lost loved ones, I mean, how can it not be traumatic? Yeah. Yeah, very, very traumatic. And as you talk about that, I, I, uh, I love that picture. I don't know if it's the cover of the book or if it's in the book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss with the two of you as kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and you just seem you, like you just described, left and right hemisphere of a, of a common consciousness the two that that photo is just a such a beautiful photo of you guys the one on the cover yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And i don't yeah. even know what you're looking at but you guys i think one of you has some some you know uh binoculars 
Right. And yeah, you're looking at there's something that's got these two boys' attention, but just the closeness of your bodies and what you would say is probably your souls was just uh, a great photo. Whoever captured that it was a great moment. Yeah, that that picture was taken by my mother uh, from her brownie instant, you know, her brownie yeah. camera back in 1957. Wow. And we were at the uh, Grand Canyon of the Gunnison in Colorado, hmm. which was close to where, not the Grand Canyon, the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, mm -hmm. Black Canyon National Monument, which was about 30 miles from our house. So mm. we used to go over there all the time for picnics and stuff. And it's an enormous yeah. gash in the earth. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it is the the deepest gorge in, in the Western United States. It's like 3,000 feet. Wow. So that's why that that was the original Screaming Abyss, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's, that's why the, uh, the book is named what it is, was because of that. Uh, you know, the connection to that canyon that was right. really important. And we would go over there. And I, I like that uh, picture very much because I'm yeah. kind of, you know, I got the binoculars. I'm like the scientist looking through the instruments. Mm -hmm. And Terrence is kind of looking dreamily off into space. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it captures very well the different ways that that we were in the different ways we relate to related to each other at that time. Yeah. I was kind of the nuts and bolts person. I want to know what the molecules are. I want to know how these things work. I want to, you know, look at the machinery of it. And Terence was like the metaphysician, you know, and uh, yeah. the philosopher and so on. So it was uh, complimentary. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful friendship relationship. Uh, these exactly. two brothers. Yeah. yeah. And we are all grateful for that for sure. Um, I just have a couple more questions, you know, um, just to kind of wrap up. Uh, first of all, thanks for sharing all that. Very, I really appreciate that. And, and you're so generous with your time. And I'm really grateful, you know, for you to come here and spend some time with me. So what, what do you have coming up? What, what other events? I know that, you know, the, the Food of the Gods 50th anniversary came out. You wrote a foreword for that. You had this mm -hmm. event with uh, Michael Pollan. You've got a symposium. So what what are some things that you want to put out there for people to know that this is going to be coming from you? Well, other things that we're doing for the Academy uh, or with mm. the Academy, uh, some of it has to do with uh, projects we've got going in South, South America, uh, which, of course, are are difficult because of COVID and you can't yeah. really travel. I haven't. I have not been to Peru since uh, November 2019, mm -hmm. you know, and I haven't been traveling. I mean, the last time I traveled was uh, was February 2020, just before it all came down. Yeah. So, but we are pursuing a, a couple of projects in South America. One of them we call Biognosis or Knowledge Preservation mm -hmm. Project. And it has to do with working with a botanist down there, uh, who is the curator of the herbarium at the university in in Iquitos, the UNAP herbarium. And this, this guy is uh, an incredible botanist. And hmm. uh, I've worked with him ever since my graduate school days in 1981. Oh, wow. That's when we first started working together. 
well, he has an incredible store of knowledge, but it's all in his head and he doesn't write things down and mm. he's not getting any younger. So we're trying to work on a documentary project to kind of using videography, kind of interview him and, and get some documentation of, of his knowledge of, of nice. the plants and, and everything. So that's a big project that we're working on and we're hoping that that will end up leading to a series of short documentaries that will hmm. focus more on the state of ethnomedicine in the Amazon, traditional medicine and so on and involve uh, visiting various communities, interviews with curanderos, interviews with all the players, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know if you've been to Iquitos or have not. Well, it is the epicenter of ayahuasca tourism, mm -hmm. you know, yep. with all the, you know, I mean, that's yep. a, a checkered thing, you know, mm -hmm. there are good aspects to it and bad aspects to it, but it's a very vibrant situation and, and it's brought change to that community, to the, to the indigenous communities around there and so on. So it's a time of great change between ayahuasca tourism and COVID, you know, it's, it's transformed that world. And yeah. so we want to kind of create a snapshot of through these documentaries, uh, we want to create a snapshot of the uh, current situation with, with traditional healing and the ayahuasca tourism phenomenon and all that, which is, you know, which, 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 you know, for a while there was nothing happening. The retreat center shut down. People are now coming back. And uh, so the situation is changing. So we want to uh, document that just to give people a perspective uh, mm -hmm. on, on uh, you know, the fact that these traditions and practices are not, uh, they're not frozen in time. You know, they're part of a dynamic, social and economic situation you know yeah. and and everybody's trying to adapt to the the changed world that we now live in you know i mean mm -hmm. if you, uh, I, I wrote a piece on my blog not too long ago and i said the world as we know it has changed has ended mm -hmm. you know terence was always uh, predicting the end of the world mm. well it, it didn't happen in the way that he projected thank God. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and he was off by at least 10 years, but in a certain way, I often wonder what he would think if he were right day, you know, I mean, we didn't see a lot of this coming. We, no. we, we saw a, you know, that change was on the way, but, uh, and that things were going to happen. I don't think that we, I don't think that a pandemic is figured too large in our, no. our projections about the future and yet here we mm -hmm. are and and now we you know we live in the age of pandemics this is not the first and it won't be right. the last. so so there's that and uh um uh, what else did you ask <laughs> what else <laughs> coming up i think you mentioned a symposium and just anything oh, else that you oh. want to get out there that people know about right well we're we're working on this on this uh this documentary project down there mostly. And then mm -hmm. the next stage of that, uh, I, I want to 
work with the herbarium, uh, work with Juan, work with the Juan Ruiz, the curator of the herbarium, and try and digitize the herbarium. Hmm. I mean, make high resolution scans of all the collections and put those out on the internet in an open access, open source format and link them into databases, genomic databases, natural products databases, yeah. all this kind of thing. Essentially use that. The herbarium is a, you know, it's a third world uh, herbarium in a, in a, you know, struggling, economically struggling university, but it's a gem, you know, it's a resource. Mm -hmm. And it was so important for me when I first came to Iquitos, when I first came to Peru to do this work, uh, I want to do what we can to raise funds to make that a world-class resource for people mm. with any interest in Amazonian flora. You know, it doesn't have to be psychedelics or medicine or whatever. Anyone yeah. with an interest in the Amazonian flora would find this a useful resource. So that's the big project that we're trying to do. And that's going to take two or three years minimum and probably mm -hmm. over a million dollars if we can raise the funds. But we're doing these documentary, uh, these documentaries first as a, as a sort of run up to that and yes. uh, get focus on it, get people uh, excited about supporting this. So that's wonderful. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, anything else? Any other thoughts? Anything else you want to get out there before we wrap up? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. I would just say, uh, you know, I would urge people to check out the Academy, um, sign up for the mailing list. We send out newsletters regularly mm -hmm. and, uh, and there are resources there that people can access, you know, that they may be interested in. Uh, some of them are just recordings of past events we've done and others are different things that we put up. For example, uh, you may have heard of ESPD 50, uh, which stands for the, Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. Hmm. And the uh, ESPD 50 was a 50th anniversary symposium of a conference by that name that was organized by the National Institute of Mental Health in 2017 and 20 in 1967. Mm -hmm. And they it was a private conference organized by the government. The only thing that ever came out of it was a book by that name, the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And that book came into my radar at the age of 18 and really was a, uh, made me aware that there was an actual science of ethnopharmacology. And I decided to pursue that, you know. And the book was profoundly influential in that sense, making me aware that there was actually a scientific uh, aspect to this, as well as the ethnographic and so on. Uh, so in 2017, well, with the original conference, the government was supposed to show uh, organize follow-up conferences every 10 years or so. Well, hmm. the war, war on drugs intervened. And they became embarrassed that they ever had anything to do with this, but they did have this publication. So in 2017, everything fell together. And I, uh, uh, 
got the opportunity to stage a 50th anniversary uh, commemorative symposium for, for this thing. And, uh, uh, and we put that out in 2017 and uh, it was quite successful. Uh, unlike, uh, I'm gonna give you the a link here. Uh, unlike the government's uh, symposium, there were relatively few number of people attending this one because of where it was, but we live streamed it on Facebook. So hmm. at point 75,000 people were watching these wow. lectures. And uh, I'm putting the link here to the Vimeo collection of all these lectures from the, uh, from the symposium. And if, if, and we published a, a beautiful uh, two volume uh, uh, printed version. We actually reprinted the 1967 volume because it was government publication. So it was mm -hmm. in, the, in the public domain. And then we printed the uh, 2017 uh, symposium as a, as a box set. Uh, beautiful job of publishing, thanks to collaborating with some really talented artists. So mm -hmm. people can buy, if they want the hard copy, they can buy it at Synergetic Press. They can order it. And it's, you know, I wanted the conference to be uh, as similar to the original conference as possible. And as the bit with conferences are, you know, you, you present your stuff and then you publish a symposium proceedings, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what that was. But uh the, uh, the, the video collection of the lectures, it's open access, there's no charge, and people can find those things and listen to them. And there's a lot of good, some amazing presentations there. So that's something I wanna to bring to people's attention, that, that that resource is out there. And other things on our website as well, just, uh, just check the website out, look at resources and so on. They are, those lectures are linked also on our website somewhere. Um, okay, McKenna.academy. I will put a link to that, uh, to the Vimeo page and to the Synergetic Press. Uh, so people, people can find all those. Okay, that, that would be great. That'd be great. Yeah, awesome. so that's about it. All right. Well, again, um, thank you so much for your time today. Really great conversation. I, I appreciate it. You're so generous with your time. So I'm just grateful and uh, we will catch up again sometime okay. in the future. All right. Very good. Well, I, I try to be available, you know, you so, are, you're yeah. amazing. Okay. Bye. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Take Thanks care. Bye -bye. Have a good week here. That concludes this edition of the Stoned Ape Reports. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Stoned Ape Comedy and subscribe to our newsletter at www.stonedapecomedy.com. Again, thanks for listening, and catch you next time, Stoned Apes.